Singing Dutchman Productions. Hello and welcome to Doug's Front Porch, a podcast where I get to sit down with friends old and new and have honest conversations. Welcome to a very special episode of Doug's Front Porch. Normally, it's just I and a friend up here on the porch, but this time I have to add an extra rocking chair. And for the first time in the podcast history, I have returning guests. Welcome back, Matt DeSantis and Kevin Schock. Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. Kevin, can you hear me out there on the porch? Yeah, sorry. I had a... I had a... <laughs> I had a blip in my internet, but I'm, I'm here now. Yes. Well, welcome back, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks. So Matt, as we learned on episode 22, is a political scientist and is the mind and voice behind the podcast From the Swamp to the Swamp. And we met Kevin in episode 19. He is an ordained Lutheran pastor and currently serving at St. Mark Lutheran Church in Pleasant Gap, Pennsylvania. Growing up, I always heard that you should never talk about politics, religion, and sex in mixed company. And I never really knew why that was until I got older. And now I've started to understand this advice very well. But today we're throwing caution to the wind and we're going to forget the sex part, but we are going to tackle politics and religion. And since I know both of you and truly value your insights and perspectives, I thought it'd be a fun conversation to have. So I want to start with this. I'm going to flip the tables on you. Matt, what role did or does religion play in your life? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, That is flipping the script a little bit. (laughs) So it's played a really influential role in my life. Uh, I was raised in the evangelical faith growing up. I went to an evangelical congregational denomination uh, when I was younger and, uh, you know, very involved in the church. It really provided a sense of community. It provided a sense of uh, morality and right and wrong. Uh, it, would, it did not necessarily inform my politics uh, as I got older, uh, even though it was a rather conservative denomination. Uh, it it, it didn't kind of bleed over into the way I thought about politics. Uh, and then the other way religion has played a significant role in my life is I went to college at Furman University, which is in Greenville, South Carolina, which is in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And about two miles away was Bob Jones University, which is a very outspoken institution uh, and very conservative and makes headlines for protesting professional wrestling and things like that for being the work of the devil. Uh, and I had to re- regularly uh, remind people that I went to a different private school in South Carolina, Carolina not Bob Jones. Uh, but Furman was overwhelmingly Southern Baptist. And that was a very different religious tradition than I grew up in. And it was that interaction with Southern Baptists and Pentecostals and Charismatics that really led me in graduate school to start studying the intersection of things, as you said, Doug, you shouldn't talk about, which was religion and politics. So uh, that's how religions kind of made an impact in my life. All right, Kevin, what role does politics or did politics play in your life? Yeah, um, I would I would consider myself to be uh, politically interested, I guess. I, to, to say I'm politically active, I think uh, that implies that I'm, you know, like running for uh, running for office or something like that. But uh, but I'm politically interested. Um, I enjoy reading about politics, listening to different sources, um, uh, you know, some in-depth journalism about politics. But I think where it really, uh, right from, I I don't know if it was the people I was around, it wasn't really my parents, uh, but I had some uh, politically interested friends when I was in high school. And so, um, you know, it was, it was no question for me that when I turned 18, I registered to vote and, um, and have been registered. I'm <laughs> in my life. I have been registered uh, Republican and Democrat and nonpartisan. So that can tell that tells you a little bit about where, uh, at least where my journey has been. I'm not going to tell you what I'm registered right now, but uh, but I've been all over the place. And the other time, uh, Doug, you know, something that you and I have in common is that we both have studied abroad. And I really became politically interested when I was reading about the United States 
through the lens of another nation's media, uh, a, a friendly nation, a, a friendly nation to the United States, but reading things that I had never really uh, heard before and from a perspective I had never really heard before. And so I think from that point forward, that was during my college years, that was when I really uh, became more interested in learning about the political scene and uh, and being maybe a little uh, a little critical of the political scene in the United States, um, but also being active uh, in, as far as as far as voting and and keeping informed. Okay. Good. Uh, this is the hot button that I had to ask right away. And I'm going to ask both of you the same question. And uh, I, I, you guys can decide who will answer it first. But what does separation of church and state mean? <laughs> Kevin, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm uh, well, what does it mean? What it means to me? I'll answer that, Doug. Uh, I'm. I'm very, um, I would say I have a strong opinion about what the separation of church and state should be. And I think that uh, as, a, as a religious leader, I don't want the government dictating what me personally or what my faith community or what my denomination uh, practices as, I mean, you know, within the, within the bounds of legality. Um, uh, I don't want the government to be dictating what I'm, allowed to say or not allowed to say from the pulpit. Uh, I also actually have the viewpoint, uh, which I don't know if at least the, the viewpoint is not strong enough in the United States to change it at this point. I don't actually enjoy being an agent of the state when it comes to uh, marriage. I, d I don't like the fact that I, you know, uh, sign a piece of paper and send it into the county courthouse. I think that, I think that legal marriage and uh, a, a, blessing of marriage in a faith community are two things that can and should be held separate. Uh, but because of the way things work in the United States right now, I, I don't, you know, I don't make it more difficult for brides and grooms and, and partners and spouses who come to me. Uh, I, I gladly signed the paper and send it into the courthouse. So they have a legal marriage. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I don't, I don't think the government should be involved in what I say, but I also don't think as a religious leader that it's my place for me to tell my people how they should vote or what they should believe when it comes to politics. So for me, it's both sides of the coin. I, I don't, uh, not that, not that I don't encourage people to become politically active, to vote or be informed, but, um, you know, the way that the law stands, I mean, well, the law, the, IRS code stands in the United States. If I endorse a candidate from the pulpit, uh, my congregation will lose its tax exempt status. And I think that that is absolutely appropriate. In fact, there's a part of me that thinks that we should not be tax exempt at all, uh, but that might be a deeper conversation. Um, I don't, I, it's not my place to tell people how to vote. And, and frankly, as a religious leader, um, Although those things intersect, what people believe, their faith life, how they vote, uh, it, that's, that's their choice. And, and that's something that, um, that they, have, they have a mind and they have faculties to come to that decision on their own. They don't need their pastor to tell them what to do in that regard. Kevin, I have one quick follow-up question in regards to your answer, and it's not necessarily a question, but a comment, but I guess I can turn it into a question. When you first came to the church that you're at now, and I was a member and attending there, um, one of the things that you did early on, which really surprised me at the time, and I don't know how the rest of the congregation felt. I'm sure that there were some uh, people probably got angry or hurt about this, but you removed the American flag from inside the sanctuary. There was an American flag in the sanctuary, which a lot of Amer a lot of churches in America have a, a flag in their sanctuary um, and it was gone. And that was a was one of those moments for me where I sat and really thought about, you know, in the church I grew up in, for example, uh, there was always an American church up at the front, not in the, not in the center of the altar, of course, but up front. I mean, everybody in the congregation saw it when you looked up or looked towards the pastor. Um, but that flag got removed. And of course, it's still not there in our sanctuary there in Pleasant Gap. Uh, you want to comment on that or your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, you're misremembering, Doug. Okay. I did not I did not remove the flag. It was okay. already it was already out of the sanctuary when I arrived oh, there. Okay. Uh but and, you didn't but you didn't put it back. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'll I'll confess that when I was interviewing at that congregation, uh I thought to myself, well, that's one fight I won't have to fight. Oh. Um and 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 the American flag uh has a it has a prominent place in our narthex. People yes. see it when they walk in the door. Um there there's not it's not a it's not a question for me, it's not a question of you know as an American citizen, do I honor uh what veterans have done, the dead we have lost in wars, uh, you know, the the kind of some of the um the values and the structure of our nation. Absolutely. I honor those things. I honor those things as an American, Uh, but in the house of God, I, again, the cross is up front. And that's, that's because that's, that's the place for that. And the flag may have another place in the church building, but when we are worshiping God, we are focused on the cross. We're not focused on any particular flag or any other particular thing uh, that will guide us in in one way or another as far as political thought goes. So, Matt, before you give your own personal thoughts on, on some of this stuff, it, when you were uh, a professor of political science, mm-hmm. how did you address the, the topic of separation of church and state to your students so that they under so that they understood it? I guess we'll put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's about going back in history in a lot of cases and explaining the origins of why we found this to be so significant and the idea of religious freedom, of the government not dictating how people worship, um, but also not establishing a theocracy as well. On the other hand, this idea of the government mandating a certain type of religious belief and that the government is simply an extension of religious beliefs and morality, et cetera. Uh, and so it, it's a lot of exposing students to different enlightenment thinkers. It's talking to them about the founding documents and not just the declaration of the constitution, but a lot of the essays that were written uh, in the federalist papers, even the anti-federalist papers that talked about the importance of separation uh, and, and going through and understanding that you know the first amendment obviously protects the freedom of religion and the ability for you to practice what you want. But at the same time, the government should not also be an arm of a particular religious persuasion. Uh, in the United States, we have had an, you know, our country is overwhelmingly Christian. And I, this is the distinction that I would always make. I would say, we are not a Christian nation. And sometimes people bristle at that notion. I say, we are a nation that happens to be overwhelmingly Christian. But there's a difference between those two things. A Christian nation insinuates that Christianity is informing our decisions and informing our laws and informing all of our governmental actions are, are kind of come back through this lens of Christianity. And certainly that can be the case for individual lawmakers, and that can be the case sometimes for the genesis of certain laws, but it does not mandate those things. But we are a nation that is, you know, historically speaking, 80 plus percent uh, Christian and very devout. And well, that was always the fun part for me is I would actually show students the countries that we are most similar to around the world were overwhelmingly in Latin America and the Middle East and Southeast Asia a little bit. And our our peers, our allies in Europe look nothing like us religiously, uh, significantly less religious in terms of fervor, in terms of church attendance. The evangelical faith alone in the United States sets us apart from so many other European countries. So it was fun to kind of show how we could for, for a long time, have our cake and eat it too. We could have this very deeply religious country and yet have this very firm separation from that in our government. So uh, that was always one of the fun topics to cover and, and to uh, topple some misconceptions that are out there. Yeah, I think it's that's always a knee jerk answer for a lot of people whenever they whenever something comes up that has even the tinge of of religiosity with it. It's right away. People start screaming separation of church and state. And, and, and yeah. I, I think all too often that. They, that's that's just what they yell and they don't necessarily understand what that means and where it where it comes from. I guess I'd also throw it to you, Matt, is, you know, people often are always saying too, well, the United States is founded on the Judeo-Christian principles. What do mm-hmm. you say to somebody that says that to you? It, it is a byproduct of yes and no. 
it's it's founded on Judeo-Christian principles because many of the Enlightenment scholars themselves were Judeo-Christian. Uh, but that is, not, it was not set out to intently be a Judeo-Christian state. Uh, and I think that's, again, a distinction between ourselves and theocracies around the rest of the world. There's, you know, Muslim states uh, and throughout the Middle East. I mean, that is the idea of the religion of that uh, informing everything in that country uh, and, and mandating the laws. The Enlightenment scholars, the John Locke's of the world, the Jean-Jacques Rousseau's, uh, less so Hobbes, but, but certainly, uh, you know, and, and then our early founders were overwhelmingly religious. And yes, these ideas were grounded of uh, the, the worth of an individual. Uh, these are ideas that are deeply rooted in our faith, but we created a government that was open to people of all faiths, whether they were Judeo-Christian or not, whether they were of any religious persuasion or not. Um, a lot of our early founding fathers would be categorized today as probably more agnostic um, or, uh, you know, certainly maybe universal Unitarians kind of believing their own thing uh, sometimes, but it is, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting kind of time. And, and the idea as well is I think when people have that knee jerk reaction, they also don't take into consideration the evolution of ideas and the evolution of government that, Ideas change over time. Government itself changes over time. The structure of it, the foundation of it, the purpose of it, our document, our founding document continues to be amended over time. So everything changes in this country. And just because it was necessarily founded on certain principles does not mean that that is the way it will always be. That is the beauty of our founding document is that it is flexible uh, to accommodate 230 plus years of our nation's history. So, uh, but, but I do also say, and I will kind of just quickly mention, I would also frequently write a, an equation on the board in my class and it said religion equals culture, which equals politics. Uh, and so these things ultimately are always interconnected with each other. And that's okay. Uh, and, you know, explaining to people that you are deeply influenced by your religious beliefs and that informs the way you think about politics, that's fine. That's not a violation of the separation of church and state. We don't need to all walk around as secular beings, uh, you know, trying to eliminate religion from our minds when making political decisions. Uh, it is natural for us to use that worldview to inform how we think about political issues. And that's not a violation. That's not a bad thing. And that's been around since the beginning of our country. Kevin, I see you nodding your head a lot over there. You thoughts comments <laughs> i matthew and i are on the same page about a lot of things uh <laughs> which won't make for a very um uh you know a, a very like divisive conversation or uh you know like, I, I, uh, kevin i can channel up my southern baptists and, and i can you know, <laughs> well okay might, i can do that, that if might... i need to <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i no I, I i mean just some of the things that resonated with me as matthew was speaking uh one just what you said at the end there Matthew, that, you know, that, that, that religion, culture, politics are all intertwined. And, and I, I can absolutely say that, um, that my political opinions, my political decisions are completely rooted in my faith. Um, but that doesn't mean that I have a right then to, a, a, as a religious leader, Mm -hmm. uh, impart those opinions and those beliefs on the people that I serve, uh, the other people in my community. We can have discussion about it, yeah. but I, but I don't have a right to say this is what you have to believe. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that that was just one thing. But yeah, there were yeah. lots of things that Matthew was saying that I thought, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because I when I was in uh, college, I studied under a professor uh, Jim Guth. Uh, at Furman University, and he's a really great scholar on religion and politics. And he held, uh, he used to do a survey of Southern Baptist clergy. And this just shows how much things have changed in the last 25 years. This was the late 90s, early 2000s. And I remember getting the responses back because we were in his, you know, he used us as kind of the, uh, uh, the cheap labor to some extent in the class, because, you know, we would get the surveys back and we would code everything and enter it into a database. And I remember looking at that data and Southern Baptist clergy 20, 25 years ago were pretty mixed on whether or not they should send political messages. A lot of them did not feel comfortable. Many of them didn't feel their own politics were aligned with theirs of the congregation. And therefore, uh, they, they, they did not want to make any sort of 
overtly political statements or or uh, or give any sort of sermons that could be interpreted in a religious way ahead of an election. And so it's just so fascinating to see now fast forward to today where it just seems like, you know, and not just Southern Baptist, I'm not trying to pick on them at all, but but so many of these evangelical denominations are now just completely solidified. And if you walk into a church anytime in October, or November, right before an election, the sermons are overwhelmingly, you know, t- just dripping with uh, political rhetoric in a lot of ways without, and, and skirting around, Kevin, what you talked about, they don't mention a candidate, but they talk a lot about issues of right to life. And they talk a lot about issues of morality. And they talk a lot about issues that trigger people to go, hey, I don't like what this candidates doing or that candidates doing, and I'm going to go and vote that way on Tuesday. Uh, so it's just interesting for even some of our most conservative religions in the country still to see how they've evolved in a relatively short period of time uh, within our political system. Matt, can I ask you what you what do you think? What's your opinion on why that shift happened in such a short amount of time? I mean, 20 years is is yeah. a short amount of time to have a such a huge cultural shift. What what yeah. do you think? Well, I think part of it is it's important to remember evangelical Christians were still a very politically young group in our country that really it was not until the election of 1980 with Ronald Reagan when evangelical Christians really stood up with one voice. Uh, they they kind of all accidentally voted for Jimmy Carter in 1976, not realizing uh, that Jimmy Carter, while one of them was was maybe the most liberal uh, Southern Baptist they, they could have possibly found. And, uh, and so it wasn't, like I said, until 80 that they really started to establish themselves. But even then, they were still very politically naive. A lot of times, Republican leaders could kind of keep them at arm's length and uh, and kind of give them a lot of rhetoric and not a lot of action. I mean, someone like Sandra Day O'Connor, when she was uh, appointed and nominated to the Supreme Court, was supposed to be this you know, great pro-life uh, Supreme Court justice who was going to help overturn Roe versus Wade. And she ended up being a pro-choice justice who ended up uh, you know, upholding Roe versus Wade. And so it was... I think what you see, though, is this evolution of Southern Baptists, that they became more politically conscious. I think the, 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 the power of politics started to seep into the congregations, and suddenly it was important to not only have these beliefs, but to have others, to have those beliefs manifested in law and in government. And the way to do that was to take over in many ways one political party, in this case, the Republican Party. And so you saw Southern Baptists and other conservative congregations becoming just so much more unified and so much more politically active uh, at the grassroots level. And so it was, uh, like I said, just a really fascinating evolution. And that, you know, and, and it's important to remember that's before George W. Bush. This is 1998. So before George W. Bush comes in, born again Christian runs in 2004, makes campaign promises about a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. I mean, so there was a lot to gin up that base. And I think that's just happened. And Donald Trump and other Republican uh, candidates have only increased uh, that fervor among Southern Baptists. And I, I think that's why you've seen that consolidation in, the, in that those congregations. Kevin, what do you think when uh, you, know, you hear this stuff and you see... Um some of these things being said and done in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, these are, you know, we're doing this because this is what God would want. And here you are, uh, you know, trying to uh, spread the gospel. I mean, that's your mission, right? You've been sent out to, to, to preach the word. Um, and you're, you're talking about the same, <laughs> the same Jesus, but a, a somewhat different Jesus at the same time. how, how do you, how do you, how do you square that in your, I mean, I know how you probably do personally, but if you come into contact with other devout Christians that would call you out for not being the right kind of Christian, because maybe you don't support all the same viewpoints or perspectives that they have. That's a pretty big question, Doug. Uh, <laughs> you know, when it comes to when it comes to the practice of the faith, and 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 I can't speak for I can't speak for any other faith, but but Christianity, and and really I can't even speak. Well, I can't speak for what would be considered more conservative Christianity, um, because I just know the 
the tradition that I was raised in and kind of the, the, the work, the work that I've been taught to parse scripture, theology, and uh, the intersection of those things with human life. Um, so I guess what I can say, when I do come across someone who accuses me of not being Christian or not being the right kind of Christian, I stand there and take it. That's, that's my response. And uh, it's been my experience that, that um, how do I want to say this, Doug? Uh, that brings the argument to a close. Uh, I am, I am more than willing, I'm more than willing to discuss all kinds of theological, scriptural, political ideas with people, but I think that it has to be done respectfully. And I think that, uh, and I think it should be done respectfully. I think that we've gotten ourselves in a place in this nation culturally that we can't talk about those things in the intersection of politics and religion because we are not practiced at it. We have been told, like you said at the very beginning of the, of the episode, Doug, we've been told that we shouldn't talk about those things in the public sphere, yeah. that it's not polite company. And I think that this is, this is a time when uh, maybe now more than ever, although that's, I mean, you probably say that about a lot of things, now more than ever, uh, we should be talking about it. But when we have discussion about such things, we have to remember that listening is as much, if not more, a part of being in discussion with someone else than talking is. Uh, and now, Doug, I don't even remember the question you asked me. Oh, how, 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 do, I, how do I respond to somebody? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I usually, I let people talk. I mean, my, my, profession, my profession and my personality is that I am a listener. I do like to talk. I love to engage ideas. I love to, I, I, I'm an, uh, an external processor. So when I'm talking, I'm thinking through things. Uh, and um, if someone wants to accuse me of not being a devout Christian or the right kind of Christian, that's okay. Because something I've learned in my own life is that I think I probably could have been accused of that earlier uh, in my life, that, that, that I would be willing to say that person is not a real Christian or a devout Christian. I'm no, I'm no longer willing to say that because I recognize that we all, um, pretty much all of us who practice a faith uh, or even not a faith, maybe just uh, are, are uh, committed to a particular belief system, we've arrived at that system of belief uh, through usually some kind of personal and communal discernment. So it's not for me to, you know, to go into a congregation or a group of people who thinks, who, who, with whom I share faith, but who think vastly differently from me and say, well, you're not doing it right. That's not, that's not fair. And, it, and it's not fair for someone to say that to me either. So, yeah. I, um, Doug, I, I can't remember what it was in your question that made me think of this, but there is, there is something at stake. And, and what that is, is uh, I'm going to refer back to a, we'll call him a, a modern Lutheran theologian named Daniel Erlander who wrote a, uh, well, I mean, he's a, he's a graphic artist is what he is. <laughs> he writes very simple books uh, that have very rudimentary illustrations in them with very profound thoughts. And he, one of his favorite books of mine, and, and we've studied it at the congregation where I serve, is a book called Manna and Mercy. And it is an overview of, it's an overview of scripture. But what he talks about there is that there are always in the world pyramids that are set up. You know, for uh, you might recognize that reference, pyramids referring to the ancient Egyptians who used uh, 
the Jewish people as slaves, uh, and then the, the the primary salvation narrative for the Jewish people as the exodus from slavery in Egypt into the promised land. Um, but throughout history, Erlander talks about there have been pyramids that are set up. And if you imagine a pyramid with different levels on it, I'm kind of drawing it here as I'm talking about it, there are a very few elite at the top who have a lot of power and a lot of money. There are people underneath them who have enough power and money to support what the elite are doing. And then at the bottom of the pyramid are the ones who generally are oppressed. Um, perhaps they don't have, you know, everything that they need to live and thrive. They don't, you know, they, so, they, don't, they don't quite have the economic or the social freedom of the people higher up on the pyramid. Uh, but one thing that Erlander says in that book is that the pyramid is a natural uh, extension of the human sinful condition that we always want to rank people, you know, who's high, who's low. Uh, and the structures, the social structures, the cultural structures that support the pyramid system are the police or the military and the religious leaders, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but I think that's part of the reason why we hear uh, politically active religious leaders in this nation kind of, as Matthew said, without saying it explicitly, supporting one way of thought or another. Um, because sometimes you, the, the powers that be uh, in the political realm and the religious realm come together to, so that the social structure as it stands is not disturbed. I have no idea, you said something in your question that made me think of that and I have no idea why. So maybe we'll get back to it, but I don't know. No, I, I love that, Kevin, because that to me, that reminds me in many ways of why I think religion in America is so unique, because it, it is, unlike so many other countries, so much more egalitarian, uh, and, and particularly at the, the founding uh, in, in early America, that where uh, there was not, you know, that pyramid was, was pretty flat. I mean, it was, you had a couple of leaders, certainly, but, uh, and lay people, but, it, it, you know, and elders and things like that. But I mean, it was really a, a very egalitarian, very, um, very different model than what you saw in the old world of Europe, which was extremely hierarchical, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and very oppressive in a lot of different ways. Uh, and in the United States, you had this network of religions that were communal and that were not necessarily linked together in some one grand faith. Uh, and I mean, this was something, one of my favorite early American, he's not American, he's French, but one of my favorite early philosophers is Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who writes in Democracy in America and comes over and basically goes, oh my God, this country is amazing compared to what I'm dealing with over in France. Uh, and uh, and it probably could still write that today. That's a whole nother, uh, that's my own little two cents about France. But, uh, you know, it is, it, it was an amazing thing to, for him to come over and see how that egalitarian nature of religion in America totally changed our political identity, totally changed how we interacted with each other between different groups and different classes, that religion bonded people together. It didn't break people apart. Um, and I mean, he just goes on and on about that. And uh, he, one of the, my favorite lines is America is great because America is good. If America stops being good, it stops being that's great. great. Uh, and I, I think that that's something I always come back to uh, because especially with the, the recent presidential campaigns of making America great again, I always would say the question is, are we still good? Because if we're still good, then we're still great. And we don't need to worry about becoming great again. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, that, that really, uh, that's an interesting, I'll have to take a look at those, uh, those books because uh, that, that was a really interesting uh, thought that you brought up. I, if I could just comment one thing, I'm going to push back a little, Matthew. You're the political expert here. Uh, and I agree that in some sense, um, it was much more egalitarian. Yeah. Uh, uh, but let's also not forget that there was a large group of people who were here, not, not by their own will. Yes. And they were, and they were quote unquote, building the pyramids. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and I, I guess the reason that that just came to mind is because the thinking again of how the, you know, the military and the religious leaders, mm-hmm. uh, support that structure yeah uh you know doug and i were just talking the other night on the back porch not the front porch uh (laughs) you know about a a little bit about the history of policing in the united states and how it was the night patrols you know so there you have one example and the other thing that i just think is uh so so shameful for american protestantism is that we gave enslaved people the christian religion but we redacted it so that they would not know about liberation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and famously, we hear the anecdotes of slaves not being allowed or not, not hearing. I mean, you know, many of them couldn't read. They weren't taught, but, but not hearing the story of the Exodus. Yeah. And there's a reason for that, because if they <laughs> right. heard the story of the Exodus, well, then the pyramid would be disturbed. Yes. The structure would fail. Yeah. They Very would much. want liberation. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 you know, it's interesting too, because even Tocqueville even brings this up when he talks about how, when he crosses over, I believe it's the Ohio river uh, from Ohio into Kentucky, how everything Mm. just instantly changes. And Mm. uh, just the, the the entrepreneurial spirit and the the sense of community and just, uh, because he didn't spend a ton of time in the South, but he did. uh, And it was mostly the North. And so that's why I always have to preface the, the book by saying that's more of a reflection of the Northern kind of experience at that time. Uh, but he did, you know, he did make note of just how vastly different we were in two Americas and how, uh, and, and, you know, you're absolutely right about, uh, obviously everything you just said is 100% accurate, but it's also interesting to see how the church was used in the North to try to get behind the abolition movement in some cases. Um, and so, you know, it, it can be used for dual purposes and it's just, it, it's, you know, it, it's fascinating to see how that can be manifested in, in over time. Mm-hmm. There's those two different Jesuses again at play, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, that yeah. no, that's a. I'm glad Matthew said that. That's a perfect example of how two groups of people who are who are faithful in what they are doing can arrive at completely different uh, conclusions about where their faith leads them. Yeah. yeah, and I think we have to be honest that uh, following Jesus is not the only driver when we come to conclusions about. Uh, in, in in that period in in American history and in contemporary American culture too. Absolutely. Matt, how has social media changed politics? Oh, geez, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm trying to keep this PG, but I mean, it's, uh, uh, I, you know, we could be here all night answering that question. You know, what it's done is actually the opposite of what Tocqueville talked about. It, it has broken us into factions, which is what our founders were most worried about. You go back, you read Federalist Paper 10 and 51, they're worried about factions. They're worried about, and and sometimes people interpret that as political parties. Parties didn't really exist at that time, but, but it, you know, ultimately that's what they kind of were manifested in, but that's not really what they were talking about. They were talking about what we see today at these factions, these echo chambers. Uh, and that's what social media has done is it's created us to live in our own little corner of the internet in which everyone agrees with us, in which we are patted on the back for all of our stances that we make amongst our group of friends. And if someone dares challenge us, they can be blocked, they can be removed, they can be unfriended. Uh, and it's so. And and now there is a multitude of media outlets where you can get your media from whatever agrees with you, whatever wants to validate your point of view. Uh, that is what you're going to get your news from. And if you're liberal, you're going to get it from liberal sources. And if you're conservative, you'll get it from those sources. Uh, and if you're in the middle, you probably don't know what to do. Uh, but it is, it is a challenge. And it is, and the problem is that it's so intoxicating for people to be told that they're right and to be, and to feel like they have a good beat on things. And uh, it is so difficult to break them out of that. And, I, the, the problem that we face is that we are indoctrinating whole new generations into that mindset from a very young age now where kids are on social media and, and in their own little worlds. The one thing I will say, it, and it, you know, sometimes I think older people will uh, shake their head at the youth. 
But in some ways, the youth is using social media for completely ridiculous things compared to what, you know, people our age are using social media for to make kind of political stances and all this stuff. And, you know, certainly there are young influencers and politics on TikTok and other social media platforms. But uh, in my experience, young people are not as plugged in as it, honestly, that like thir- that Gen X late millennial uh, age, uh, individual in the United States is really plugged in. Uh, even the, the baby boomer generation still is really plugged in. And again, I think it just has all, we've all moved to our separate corners and there's just no dialogue between any of them. And if it is, it's not civil because it's keyboard courage. And it's somebody who's you're behind the monitor. You're not engaging someone on the front porch and you're just spouting off. And it's so easy to antagonize and to alienate someone when, they're a half a country away and you know, you're never going to see them or interact with them again. So it's, uh, it's really been a very toxic effect on American politics, sadly. All right, Kevin, how has social media affected religion? Yeah, the exact same way, I think. And, and I, and I think, I think um, what social media has done is it has brought together. It, it has caused an intersection of religion and politics that is unhealthy. Um, and for, for many of the, for many of the same reasons that Matthew names, I think that um, politics and religion have been conflated. It, you know that that if you are if you are a Christian, you are right to life. You are uh, you know um, why am I why am I failing to think of all these hot button issues? You're you are not you're not in support of the LGBTQ people. Uh, you know, and I think that that I think that we have gotten ourselves in a place that, you know, um, like Matthew says, we like to be told that we're right. And, and so I think that fuels the idea of I'm an American and this is what I believe. And this is what you have to believe in order to be a good American too. And that's conflated with I'm a Christian and this is what I believe. And you have to believe the same thing in order to be a good Christian. I think that's where we've gotten in trouble. And I just don't think that because, because of the echo chambers, because, you know, not only do we retreat to our own corners, but I, you know, now we, now I think we're learning even more about those corners are built for us yeah. uh, because of algorithms and things like that. You know, every once in a while, this, this sounds so absurd. I like to think that, that I, that I'm Facebook friends with not just people who agree 100% with everything that I do. And every once in a while, I, I, go searching for a few of those people to see if we're still friends to see if I've been unfriended because they're just not showing up in my newsfeed. And I think there's a reason for that. And so, and, uh, and I think, you know, not saying that I'm like more conscious on social media than other people, but I think if you don't go searching, you're never going to find people who think differently than you do. And, and I think Doug, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum. If you're ever going to grow in your religious or political thought, you have to encounter people who are different from you. And social media just does not, I I won't say it doesn't, I won't say it does not allow us to do that, but it really, it certainly does not encourage us to do that. And that's a great point. And I think it's, you know, in some ways the, the hope of social media was that it would do that, right? That it would unite people from different backgrounds and different ideas and faith traditions and political beliefs, et cetera, and that we could have an online community. And when you said that, I couldn't help but, you know, think back to, because uh, Doug and I, before the podcast started, we're chatting about enlightenment philosophers. And I couldn't help but think back to like someone like Thomas Hobbes, who had a pretty low opinion of human nature and I can't help but think that maybe we're validating Hobbes in a lot of ways that we are these, you know, Hobbes basically believed everyone should just kind of, that countries should be completely homogenous. And the idea of, you know, having multiple groups of different faith traditions or races or ethnicities in one country is just unfathomable in his mind. It's just set up for failure. Uh, and in many ways, we are kind of proving Hobbes to be right to some extent uh, that human nature is very territorial and very factious. And, uh, and, and when you establish something like social media from the onset and give people a blank slate, 
I agree with you now that I, we are very much so <laughs> those corners are being drawn for us and created for us. But even before the algorithms kicked in, you still saw this retreating into, you know, these online message boards going back to like AOL and Prodigy oh, and yeah. things like that. So it, it's so fascinating to see how uh, kind of the nature of humanity is exposed with social media in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think for the average person, if we're going to look at real life situations where we are forced to um, encounter someone different from us, I think politics does it the best in the sense that if you watch a, a debate, a political debate, when you actually, or if you're the nerd watching C-SPAN and you actually see, you know, a Democrat on the House floor and then, a, you know, a Republican on the House floor and they're actually exchanging going back and forth with each other. And I think when you look at, if you look at the older debates and you see how civil they used to be, and, and those guys didn't agree with each other either, but they were able to maintain civility in that conversation at, at a high stake level. You think of like a, a presidential debate, you know, does it get any more high stakes than that? And, but now, my goodness, if you watch any political advertisement or if you get the chance and you actually watch a debate when two when two candidates are going against each other, the civility is almost completely out the window from my perspective. I mean, Matt, you're watching that stuff more than probably yeah. Kevin and I combined. Are you seeing that as well? Like, is this is the idea of what we're happening is what's happening on social media in our society leaching into the into the actual live politics as well in our country? It is in, in some ways. And I think you're right that the debates today are, it's not that they're uncivil all the time. I mean, I think they can be, yeah. uh, but they are, they're really just propaganda. It's not an engagement. You're not, you're not mm -hmm. engaging mm -hmm. in a discussion. This is not, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> this is not like what we learned in high school debate. Uh, this is, I'm trying to win an argument uh, or I'm trying to convince someone of someone else. It's not even that anymore. It's just, I'm going to talk about my issues that I care about, and I'm going to stick to my talking points. And it might, you might not as well even have the other person on the stage, uh, because it's just a campaign speech at the end of the day. And the moderators do just an awful job at pinning people down um, for a variety of reasons. And that goes into a rather incestuous, you know, relationship between the press and, and, and the politicians. But, uh, you know, I think it is, you know, and when you mentioned about C-SPAN, Doug, what I had to chuckle was you're right that we have seen at times, you know, these great congressional debates. But what is so much more common and what you don't see on C-SPAN is that you'll watch some Republican get up and give a speech and then you'll see a Democrat get up and give a speech and you get the sense that there's a back and forth. When you're actually at the chamber, these speeches are given to almost nobody. <laughs> that, that, that the Congress is, the chamber is virtually empty. And it's one person who has been in their office and then their aides kind of usher them to the floor of the Congress. They get up, they give a speech and then they leave. And then the next person kind of comes up and gives a speech. And, and so it gives the illusion that there's a back and forth, but even then it's not really a back and forth as much as I'm stating my opinion. And now I'm going to step down and have this other person who has a different point of view, state their opinion. So it's uh, unfortunately it has seeped into how, you know, it's a, whether it's a top down or a bottom up, it has trickled into both directions to how we interact with one another. All right. Both of you now have a snow globe or a magic eight ball or whatever you want to say in your hands, and you've turned them upside down and it's revealing an answer to you. Kevin, looking ahead into the future of religion in America, as we know that there is a decline uh, in religious um, uh, affiliation in religious practice among younger Americans. What does your magic eight ball say about 25, 30 years down the road and the health of the church in America? Ah, thank you, Doug. <laughs> that the church will be more focused, healthier, and infinitely smaller. I think there are, you know, um, for uh, probably 10 to 15 years, there have been, uh, th there are groups of thought in, particularly in uh, what, what some might call progressive Christianity, that the, um, well, let me, let me say that, no, not just progressive Christianity, mainline Protestant Christianity, um, which for many years, you know, for our um, for our grandparents, for baby boomers, uh, that was uh, 
that was that was an institution in America, mainline Protestantism. That was, you know, the, the church was right there in the middle of the public square. You know, I, I, I grew up in a congregation, uh, well, from the time I was early teenage years on, uh, in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, and Zion Lutheran Church stands catty corner across the street from the Blair County Courthouse. And to me, that was always just an image of this is like, this is the America. And it's on is it that's not called main street but it is the main street through town which if you go another block down there's more there's commerce and you know businesses storefronts this is the america of my grandparents and parents generations and this is not the america that we live in now and it's not the america that we're going to live into but i would say that protestant mainline protestant theologians have been saying for 10 to 15 years that we are in a we're in a season of pruning to use a biblical metaphor uh, and, um, and again, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to square that metaphor of pruning with, I'm, you know, with not saying I'm doing Christianity right and you're not, but I, I think what happens with the pruning is that, um, the people who go to church, there's, there's no longer like a, there's no longer a, any kind of social shame if you don't go to church. And so the people who go to church, and when I say go to church, that's that's uh, jargon. The people who are involved in a faith community are people who really want to be there. And I think I think for for the most part, um, you know, even uh, you know, there are probably people in their seventies, eighties, nineties who uh, attend worship every week uh, because that's what they've done for the last 70, 80, 90 years. Um, that doesn't make them any less faithful when it comes to their religious practice or their faith practice. But for people who are, you know, uh, in their 40s, 30s, 20s, if they're in mainline Protestant congregations right now, uh, it's because that that is a value that's important to them. Uh, being involved in some kind of faith practice and raising their children in some kind of faith practice is vitally important to them. And so, uh, yeah, I, as a religious leader, it gives me a little bit of, uh, there's a little, there's stress there. There's worry. <laughs> I went into seminary thinking, Hey, job security, right? Oh, no way. No, no, no way. No, I've been disabused of that for a long, long time. Uh, because I'm not even sure, Doug, you know, you say 25, 30 years down the road, I'm not even sure that I will retire from the denomination I'm currently serving in. It may not exist anymore. I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but if it doesn't, my faith tells me that the Church of Christ will still exist in some form, whatever it is. And there will be a place for me as a religious leader, perhaps, maybe not. But as a person of faith, as a, as a baptized person, absolutely. And there will always be faith communities. I mean, you know, look at scripture. There have been times when, when the nation, as Matthew pointed out earlier, 80% or higher, all on the same page when it comes to faith. Uh, and there have been times in scripture when there were literally one or two people left in the nation who were still the faithful people, the remnant. And God has always worked in the ebbs and flows of that uh, to maintain the community, the holy community. So, so I think we will be, I, what, did, what did I say at the beginning of that answer? We'll be smaller, we'll be healthier, we'll be more focused. All right, Matt, shake your ball, uh, right. your magic eight ball. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, politics in America, where will we be 25 years from now? Will we still be gridlocked like we are? Or do you have uh, what, what's your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because I think that the answer that Kevin gave directly impacts, I think, the answer that I'll, I'll probably end up giving, which is I, I think that we will things will get worse before they get better. But I think in 25, 30 years, I actually do have a hope that we end up in a somewhat of a better place. And I think part of that is when you look at even the intersection of religion and politics, and when you look at public opinion of different religious denominations, you can see significant generational turnover 
that younger, not just mainline Protestants, younger evangelicals have vastly different political opinions than their parents and their grandparents. So the, the political battle lines that we have drawn and that the baby boomers and even to some extent Gen X have drawn are not going to be there in 25 or 30 years. Now, there are going to be new battle lines. I'm sure of that. OK, uh, but 25 and 30 years from now, demographically, we're going to look like a very different country. Uh, we've spent this you know, conversation talking about religion and understandably so, but racially, ethnically, we are going to be a different country. And that does have an influence on the type of religion. Uh, you know, are we going to see a, an increased rise in Catholicism? I think that was in a, at one time a thought. But the reality is that a lot of incoming Latinos are actually converting to the Protestant faith in a lot of cases, or uh, there has been a lot of outreach to those countries, and they come in as Protestants to the United States. And so uh, it, it is not this kind of old school mentality of Irish, Italians, and Hispanics all being uh, Catholic and everybody else is Protestant, you know, this, this idea. Uh, and as a Protestant Italian, I'm a walking contradiction. And so it is, uh, you know, I, I think that's going to have an impact. But I think that Unfortunately, our politics, as I mentioned, it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. I think that there will probably sadly have to be um, some sort of an event. And I, and I don't want to speculate as to what it will be or anything like that. But it, there's going to have to be a kind of a, a crisis point. And it, that will force us to reflect and force us to step back from the ledge and force us to engage with one another in a different way. Uh, because we cannot continue down the road that we are on for 25 or 30 years. That's just simply not sustainable. So a reversal of that course has to happen. Um, and to Kevin's point, we have had <laughs> fractious politics. Uh, we have seen uh, fights on the floor of our Congress. We have picked up arms against each other as a country. We have been through the absolute worst of times, and we have been through the best of times together. Uh, what has endured and it has not endured nearly as well as scripture. It has not endured nearly as well uh, as the faith. But what has endured is our country and our constitution. And I do have some faith, not to be, no pun intended. I do have some faith in that. Uh, and I think that we will emerge in 25 or 30 years as a slightly more moderated country. I think our politics will be uh, more diverse, but uh, not as um, bipolar as it is right now. I think you will see a more even continuum of political beliefs, uh, and that will blend and bleed over into our political parties, which will have to be more diverse uh, and less homogenous than they are right now. So uh, that is maybe maybe that's a little bit of me also keeping my fingers crossed and, and kind of hoping. Uh, but like I said, I just sustainably, we can't keep this up for 25 or 30 years. So it, logically speaking, there has to be a course correction. Uh, and, and I think that... Uh, the underlying changes that we're seeing in our country are going to lead to that. Well, gentlemen, at the end of every episode, I usually do 10 quick questions, but since both of you have already answered those, I uh, chose some new ones to ask both of you. You're not going to get 10, uh, but you're each going to get three. Are you ready? I can't wait to hear some of these answers. Matt, you're going first. All right. Favorite president and why? Oh, Oh, Doug, what are you doing to me? Oh, this is like asking you, like, what's your favorite child? I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. Uh, so, uh, uh, no, favorite president and why? I will say, um, because I have, a, I have a portrait of him in my office. I'll say John Adams, uh, because I think he uh, had his, his flaws, certainly, but he was someone who stood up for what he believed in and he kept the country out of a war at a time where he knew it was politically unpopular and he ultimately cost himself re-election because he was doing the right thing and history will prove that it was the right thing. Uh, and so I, I always loved Adams a great deal. Kevin, favorite person in the Bible and why, but it can't be Jesus, somebody else. In the Bible? Oh man, I thought you were going to give me like a little more... Uh... A little more leeway, like in the in the great company of saints or something like that. Okay, like, yeah, no, absolutely, uh, <laughs> that's great because you might throw a name out there that people won't know who it is, and then you can explain why they're so important. Fair well, enough. Okay, no, I no, I haven't, I haven't answered. I actually have an answer for both of those, and I'll and I'll keep it short. Peter, Peter messes up all the time. He really struggles with uh, kind of grasping on to Jesus's vision, the vision that Jesus is giving him. And yet we see these 
bit by bit, these little flashes of, oh man, I'm okay. That makes sense to me now. And, and I think my favorite, my favorite part of Peter in scripture is when he uh, goes and visits the Gentiles in Cornelius's household. And he says, now I truly understand that God shows no partiality. Uh, but then he goes on to talk about, mm, well, maybe there's some partiality in these things. Uh, it's just, it's just this great evolution of, I, I feel like, I feel like I relate to Peter just because I've experienced the grace of God in messing up and then having some kind of learning out of it and a way forward. So that's Peter. Uh in the Company of Saints, Oscar Romero is a wonderful example of a priest who was totally in it to serve the institution of the church, saw the plight of his people, decided it was time to serve them, and lost his life violently as a result of that. And I think, I think that any he, he serves as an example to me, just as a reminder that I'm not in the work that I'm in to serve the institution. I'm in the work that I'm in to serve the people. I don't think I'll ever do anything so radical as to get shot while I'm celebrating mass, but yeah. Matt, favorite political based movie. Uh, uh, I'm going to say all the president's men. Uh, it's probably, and that's a little bit more of a media movie uh, about the press, but it, 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 at its roots though, it's about the Watergate scandal. Um, that, that's probably my favorite. I mean, I just, I, I, I rewatched that movie at least two to three times a year. Uh, and I absolutely love that movie. Uh, so it's, it's very rewatchable, purely political. I will say the musical 1776. I was ready to ask you to follow yeah. up and say, Matt, yeah. what's your favorite musical based political oh, movie? I mean, forget about it. Yeah. It's 1776 <laughs> by a mile. Don't get me started on Hamilton, which I have a lot of problems with, but <laughs> it, uh, I, you know, 1776 is so good. And I would say that a, a lot of the problems that we can trace back to in our country started when they stopped playing 1776 <laughs> on a loop on the 4th of July on TBS, like they did when I was a kid. Uh, and so if we were exposed to that all the time, we'd be a better country. I'm just saying, I'm putting that out there. <laughs> all right, Kevin, favorite religious based movie? Uh, I, I, I don't know, Doug. I, um, I, I really don't know. Uh, oh, man. Oh, gosh. That, I don't know. That's, that's tough, Doug, because I can't, I can't easily say something like Luther or, you know, or something like that. Um, oh, man. My, uh, my seminary classmates are going to love this. I love the movie Whale Rider. Which is a uh, okay. it's a it's a it's a New Zealand film from the 1990s um, in in Maori culture, uh, and it, it it's all about uh, finding belonging in a faith community and about a a girl who takes on a male role in her faith community in her cultural community and and actually I I say it's a religious movie because we were we watched it in our our liturgy, our intro to the liturgy course in seminary. So whale, of, whale rider was the name of that. Yeah. Whale. Rider. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a great, great film uh, for people who don't, who haven't had any exposure to like uh, indigenous or uh, Pacific Islander religion and culture. It's a great film to okay. entry into. Yeah. All right, Matt, last question. Yep. If you could travel back in time and be an eyewitness to any political moment in American history, what would it be and why? Oh, wow. Any political moment in history. Um, I would say, you know what I would, and this is kind of selfish and it, it kind of ties back to the first question a little bit, although it's an answer I didn't give. I would love to witness Teddy Roosevelt in just all of his glory. Um, I would just love to witness one of his stump speeches uh, and see the fervor with which he talked and spoke to the public. Uh, I think that would just be, it, it doesn't have to be a particular speech or a moment, but uh, to me, there's something so 
magnetic about him. And there's something so fantastically American about him. And that there's this man who was born to all the privilege in the world and took up an ideology that was focused on the common person. And yet he did not live like a common person. And he acknowledged that regularly, that he was this Harvard educated kind of multimillionaire many times over. And and people still loved him and were drawn to him. And I just, I would have loved to see in one of his whistle stop speeches and, uh, uh, and, and just the force and vigor with which he spoke, because he's somebody that I just admire so much. And um, it, it's a small moment, but uh, I think that would be, that would be what I'd like to go back and see. Yeah. All right, Kevin, if you could travel back in time and be an eyewitness to any religious moment in history, what would it be and why? Well, I'll limit it to American history. Uh, okay. But- Put me in the put me in the world of uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Yeah. I, I want to. I, I would love uh, to hear. I'd love to hear them speak, and I yeah, and I would be uh, I would be more afraid of anything than marching alongside them. But it, that that would be that would be an experience I know that has shaped people that I've respected in the faith. Um, and uh, yeah, and they, they, they are both, I say this, okay, I say this as a Christian religious leader, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X are both religious leaders whose uh, work and opinions I greatly admire and have shaped me. Awesome. Gentlemen, I just, I, uh, I was looking forward to this conversation for a long time because I knew no matter where, what we talked about, it was going to be engaging and, and interesting and, and you learn something from it. I'm, I'm sure the audience will take something away from something that we said here tonight, but I just want to thank you both for coming on and sharing your, your opinions, your knowledge, your, your insight. I just think it was, you know, we talk about how we're having these problems in our society of not being able to come together and talk. And, and I, I know that I shared with both of you before in the audience that that's the whole reason why I started this podcast just to get the opportunity to hear other voices. And uh, I think this was, you know, we, we didn't, we were civil tonight, of course, <laughs> and maybe we should have talked about sex. Maybe that would have brought a little bit, of, a little bit of something else to the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just want to thank both of you so much uh, for taking the time tonight to come up on the front porch and have this very thoughtful conversation with me tonight. Thank you so much, both of you. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Doug's Front Porch, a conversational podcast with your host, Doug Maidenford. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Five stars only, please. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Doug's Front Porch. Also, please feel free to tell all of your friends about the show, and I'll see you all next time on My Front Porch. (music) 